Welcome to The How of Business with your host, Henry Lopez, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here is your host. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez. My guest today is Julian Treasure. Julian, welcome to the show. Thank you, Henry. Nice to be here. And we're going to uh, uh, chat with him about what we're going to entitle Seven Deadly Sins of Speaking and how Julian, how he helps leaders to listen more consciously, speak more powerfully, and use sound more consciously for deeper connections with customers and employees, which leads to enhancing both leadership and business outcomes. We're going to discuss the seven deadly sins of speaking, as I said, which is inspired by a TED Talk, one of several very popular TED Talks entitled How to Speak So That People Want to Listen. To receive more information about the How of Business, including the show notes page for this episode, and how you can continue supporting my show and receive exclusive content and discounts through a Patreon membership, please visit thehowofbusiness.com. So Julian Treasure is a sound and communication expert, author, and international keynote speaker. His five TED Talks have been viewed more than 130 million times. And one of them is the sixth most viewed all time. He has been widely featured as a sound and communication expert in the world of media, including Time Magazine, The Economist, The Times, and many international TV and radio stations and podcasts. He has been honored uh, with both the Toastmasters International's Golden Gavel Award and the International Listening Association's Special Recognition Award. He's the author of a couple of books including How to Be Heard, Secrets for Powerful Speaking and Listening, and Sound Business, How to Use Sound to Grow Profits and Brand Value. Julian lives and joins me today from Kirkwall, Scotland. So once again, Julian Treasure, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much and looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, this is going to be an interesting one. And I'm going to try to keep us on time here because there's so many different directions I wanted to go as I was doing the research, Julian, but a lot of fascinating stuff. But I thought I'd start with with this question. What inspired this vision, which I understand you have? I believe your vision in part is, quote, to transform the world by inspiring people to listen consciously and speak powerfully. How did you arrive at that vision? Well, that's right. I've been a musician all my life, I suppose. So I think musicians listen in a slightly different way to non-musicians. You have to, if you're going to play in a band or an orchestra, you have to, first of all, have a very attentive listening. And secondly, you have to have a multi-track listening where you're conscious of a number of different people playing at the same time. And that training, I suppose, of being a musician gives one a slightly different take on Um, the sound of the world, or at least it did for me. Uh, So I started to realize in a long career through 30 years in marketing that the world organizations are making a lot of bad sound, a lot of noise that doesn't help them. And uh, so when I I sold a magazine business that I'd started uh, back in 2003, I wanted to do something about that, to bring the two halves of me together, really, the music and listening side and the marketing side. So I formed a company called The Sound Agency, where the basic proposition is to ask companies, how does your brand sound? Which many of them hadn't thought about. You know, they have a great great big brand book full of logos and typefaces and colors and so forth, and absolutely nothing about sound at all. 
which is a bit crazy because we experience the world in five senses, not just one. And in fact, there's a whole scientific community now <clears throat> investigating what's called cross-modal effects, where one sense affects the others all the time. This is going on. So it's, I think, a really big miss to focus exclusively on visual in, in branding, in marketing, and in communication generally. And we've got so seduced by the visual in the last 30 years, you know, all the innovations we've had in communication have been visual. They've been text-based um, from email through to IM and ST, uh, STS. And, um, you know, the whole thing is about looking at a screen and using your fingers and your eyes, mm -hmm. which kind of takes you out of the world to a degree. Interestingly, writing's only been around for 5,000 years. We've been using complex conversation for probably 100, maybe 150,000 years. Uh, language has been around that long. So I guess it was a, a process in, in me of realizing that most people aren't listening very much and uh, that the world therefore doesn't sound very good. And when I started the sound agency, I asked the question, does this matter? And did a lot of research and yes, it does. Mm. Because sound affects us powerfully. It affects our bodies, our feelings, our minds, our thinking, productivity, um, and also what we do. Um, so our happiness, effectiveness and well-being all changed by the sound around us and how well we can communicate with other people. And it became a bit of a mission then. Um, you know, the sound agency was about helping organizations to listen better and make better sound. Um, but after a few years, I realized that actually, hey, organizations are only people. It's just the people in the organizations who aren't listening. Mm. Hence, you know, my first TED talk was about the four effects of sound. And then I moved on uh, to one about listening, one about designing spaces, which architects do purely for the eyes, unfortunately. Uh, and the last one about powerful speaking. Uh, so it became much more about engaging people in this conversation as individuals, rather than talking to organizations. It's about, you can talk about a listening company, but is that really a thing? I mean, companies don't listen people in companies listen mm -hmm. or don't listen. Uh, so that's really where the conversation is for me now. It's about transforming the way things happen in the world with listening. And, you know, Henry, I would say never have we needed listening more than we do now. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> There's so much noise. I, I kind of suppose that, that some of it goes back to certainly in business from that perspective, the louder you are, the more attention you get, you know, the carnival barker, let's make sure I stand out. And so much of that still persists. And then, as you've touched on in today's world where there are so many inputs, I think a lot of times uh, as businesses, we think we have to be the loudest to be heard, right? Yeah, and that's a mistake because if everybody's doing that, you just end up with an incredibly loud noise where it's very hard to distinguish anything. And I think, you know, to a degree, that's what we've created in the world, isn't it? Where yeah. there's this oh, competition yeah. for attention. <clears throat> I mean, after all, we've now got some very major organizations vying for our attention, trying to grab every last minute they can of our attention. Attention has become the, the primary currency in the world, really. And um, it's very unfortunate that we've, at the same time as that's going on, we've, we've all gone a bit unconscious about our ears and about our control over what we are paying attention to. And mm -hmm. my proposition, uh, which is, you know, it, it, it's an important thing to realize, 
is that listening is not the same as hearing, is that listening is a skill, not a capability. And as a skill, it's something that we can master, practice, um, you know, become excellent at and become more discerning in. Because when you listen, you're doing two things. When you hear everything, hearing is your primary warning sense because you can hear what's behind you and you can't see what's behind you. Right. And, and it also goes, uh, it, it activates neurons far faster than vision does. So hearing is your primary warning sense. It's always on, even when you're sleeping, listening's different. In listening, you're doing these two things. First, you're selecting certain things to pay attention to. And second, you're making them mean something. So my definition of listening is making meaning from sound and that's a conscious thing. And the more conscious one becomes about listening, the more we can, we can start to pay attention to more productive things and take control of what we're consuming, the sound that we're making and how that's affecting other people. Yeah. Yeah. And you touched on a couple of times on spaces, physical spaces. And that's, that's something that for me, I've become so conscious of, and I, I attribute it to just, I'm getting older. Right. And so how noises bother me, but it just seems like every restaurant I go to as an example, it, they're just loud. And part of it is part of what you spoke to. And I think that that's not necessarily thought of in the design, but I think it just, I think that to me, that's an example of how we're all have succumbed to this, uh, I guess, a uh, symptom of uh, screaming louder than the next person. Yeah, there's a thing called the Lombard effect, uh, it's, which is well known among acousticians. Uh, so if we're sitting in a restaurant next to each other and you start speaking loud, I have to speak louder to be heard. Mm -hmm. And then you speak louder and you, you have this upward spiral <clears throat> until inevitably everybody in the room is shouting. Right. And that is what happens in badly designed restaurants where there's no soft surfaces, there's nothing absorbing the sound at all. Um, I don't know if you're in New York, but uh, I remember once a few years ago, I took my fiance to PJ Clark's in New York. And uh, it was a place my dad took me to when I was young. And I thought that'd be nice. It's the place where one, one more for the road was written. Uh, it's an iconic New York bar come hamburger place. We walked in and I have never encountered such a wall of noise in a restaurant. It was unbelievable. <laughs> uh, I took out my uh, phone, which has got a sound pressure level meter on it. Ah. Of course, <laughs> 105 decibels in there. Wow. Now that is, you know, it's getting on for rock concert levels and it's absolutely damaging for the people who have to work in there for hours to be uh, dealing with that night after night, they'll have hearing damage, not to mention that the research shows that if you're in more than 65 decibels regularly, then you are increasing your risk of heart attack and stroke. Hmm. And even teachers are doing that. So, you know, in, in, in um, badly designed classrooms where the kids are all shouting, you, they will, it may well be the case that teachers are shortening their lives by working, working in that environment. So, yes, I think we have to pay much more attention to the spaces we're designing, we need to design for the ears as well as for the eyes. And that's something which really at the moment is almost unknown. Architects train for five years and in that five years, they can spend as little as one day on acoustics. Interesting. 
Yeah. And, and that's why you see the, uh, you'll see restaurants try to patch the situation, fix the situation with acoustic panels or so forth uh, yeah. to try to fix what has been designed poorly. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. So, all right. So the health issues, as you've articulated, are there. But if we start to look at it from a business perspective, from your perspective and experience, what are some of the reasons or some of the the reasons that matter is why why listening is so important from a business perspective? Well, I, apart from the obvious one, which is listening to your customers. And, you know, I guess with social media, companies are getting somewhat better at that. They, they watch Twitter and it's easier to get feedback from people to a degree, not so much through the phone. And I think that's a huge area where business losses are absolutely astronomical. You know, press this, press two for that. I mean, how many people listening to this have slammed the phone down or terminated the call in frustration at one of those systems where none of the options is what you want. You can't speak to a real person. You can't reverse. You get stuck in a blind alley or the call ends with, thank you, bye-bye. <laughs> you haven't said anything. So those kind of systems, I think, uh, are not very good at listening. They tend to be designed by technical people and not secret shopped or listened to by marketing people very much. Uh, and then if you do get through, it's very often to a call center thousands of miles away because that's the cheapest way to do it, uh, right. where people have got a script and they're not allowed to move away from it and they can't answer your question um, and so forth. So I think on the phone, listening is very poor. And the, you know, the two greatest lies in the world are perpetrated daily, aren't they? Your call is very important to us. <laughs> And yeah, we're, we're, yeah, we're going to route it to uh, the least paid uh, person on our yeah, on our payroll. Yeah. yeah, yep. And uh, we're experiencing higher than normal call volume. Sure. Yeah, right. So we just laid off our, our call center staff, and we're on a skeleton staff now after COVID, and we're not recruiting them again. So you know, the turnover in those call centers can be as high as eighty percent a year. So these people are having to deal with angry customers who've been in one of those terrible systems for ages and on hold for 15 minutes and they're angry before they start and they're even more angry when they get through and then the call center people have a miserable life call after call can you imagine it dealing with angry upset people and without much capability to do anything about it so but, but no julian uh, uh, if i might interrupt i mean all all organizations are doing this from a because of the cost of it i mean you you take an organization like google for example to get through to a live person uh is almost impossible so what are they not getting then as to the impact of this on their business it depends entirely i think henry on the lifetime value of a customer if you're talking about a low value transaction where people don't tend to hang around long and there's not a lot of loyalty, I can completely understand a mechanistic system where you kind of just don't value people very highly. But, you know, if you're talking about something where a customer's lifetime value, take, you know, a company like Apple, for example, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a big Apple fan, always have been, and God knows how much money I've spent with Apple over the years. My lifetime value to them is very high. Um, fortunately, they're not bad at this. Uh, and I do tend to be able to get through to Dublin or wherever it is I get rooted to. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's the key question is how, do, how much do you value loyalty and what's it worth to you? What's a lifetime value? What's it worth to find a new customer when you really upset one of your existing customers with a system like that? 
And I'll give you an, uh, an example to the other end of it, uh, British Airways, for example, uh, and probably, I mean, I'm calling them out, but probably most airlines who laid off huge numbers of people in COVID, obviously, because their revenue just disappeared and they haven't really got them back on again. And it still takes 20, 25 minutes, even for travel agents to get through to British Airways and discuss travel arrangements with them. Well, they are losing so much money. The the, the um, social media about their communication is so rank that thousands of people are just going elsewhere. And these are people who spent goodness knows how much money, you know, right. flights are not cheap. You know, lifetime value, probably a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars or something. Bye-bye. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's happening. You speak about it. My, my wife is a travel consultant, so she's experiencing that on a daily basis. Okay, so the other thing I want to shift to is you talk about these filters that come into play, if I'm following uh, correctly, but but you'll you'll explain it to us, these filters that, that impact how we are able to listen, right? Yes, I mean, listening is important at every level in a company, from leadership through to working with people and, you know, communicating, briefing, um, managing projects and so forth. And, you know, to the environment we work in, it's now known that we're a third as productive in noisy open plan offices as we are in quieter spaces when we're trying to do knowledge work. Mm. So there are massive implications all over the place for not listening, not hearing what's going on around you. Um, we listen through a set of filters, absolutely. And if you're ever involved in public speaking, which I expect you are, and many of the people listening to this probably are, it's very important to understand a, a, a fundamental truth about listening that very few people get. That is, every person's listening is unique, mm. as unique as your fingerprints. Your listening, Henry, is different from mine and different from persons in the world. Why? Because we develop these filters and we listen through them all the time and they're individual. So the culture you're born into, the language you speak. And when I say culture, it could be family, tribe, group, city, region, country, whatever it is, layers of that. Uh, the language you, you learn to speak, the values, attitudes, and beliefs that you accrete along the way, which will be different from mine, you know, parents, teachers, friends, role models, you pick some up, you cast some away, um, and you have your set. And then in any given situation, you might have intentions, expectations, you might have emotions going on, you might have assumptions about what people are thinking or what's going to happen here. So listening for any individual changes through the day, and listening changes from person to person. So you put, you know, if you're speaking to one person, there's a listening you're speaking into. If you're speaking to a thousand people, there's a kind of combined listening you're speaking mm -hmm. into. And any public speaker will know the listening is very different at 9 a.m. to just after lunch at 2 p.m., for example. So the question to ask is, what's the listening I'm speaking into? And if you want to be a powerful speaker, that is the first and most basic and most important question to ask. What's the listening I'm speaking into? And by asking yourself that question, you start to pay attention to it and pick up all the little signals that you possibly can. And that is how you can hit the bullseye instead of missing the target altogether. 
Brilliant. And we're going to break that down here in a second with these seven deadly sins. But that uh, that means that to me, that as a leader in a business, uh, the more I know about how the team, the people that I'm leading and inspiring and managing, how they listen, the more I know about that, then the more effective I can be in communicating with them. Yes. Definitely. It's very interesting that listening is one of the biggest attributes that are demanded before people recruit people. So it's uh, it's known that by HR people and so forth, they will say, well, we, we want a good listener. Mm-hmm. And they might even interview on that. And the moment the person gets the job, it's completely forgotten about. <laughs> I mean, how many organizations train people on listening? How many organizations reward people for listening well? How many appraise? You know, if you do a 360, is the question, is he or she a good listener? Mm. Is that in there, in that appraisal? Right. Normally, no. So it seems to have just become a forgotten skill once people are taken on. Yeah, well, and, and I yeah. think we also, I know I'm guilty of this, we lump it into, are they a good communicator? That's how, yeah. at least that's how I see it usually. Yeah, it's too broad. You see, communication has got so many aspects to it. And I fundamentally believe that in order to be a great speaker, you have to be a great listener first. Otherwise, you are, as I said, missing the target. You're misunderstanding people. I mean, as you said, how can you run a team if you're not listening to them and if you don't understand the way they're listening to you? Right. All right. So let's break down these seven seven deadly sins of speaking. And I, as I read through them, Julian, I don't Certainly, that can be applied to the traditional speaking. I'm speaking in front of a group of people, but but I think that um, a lot of it, if not all of it, applies to even if I'm one the one speaking with someone. What are your thoughts there at a high level before we get into the the seven sins? Yes, you know what I think that there is not a difference between speaking to one person and speaking to ten thousand, other than the volume and being attentive to the listening that you're speaking into, which is more complex with a big group. Of course. But in terms of what one is doing and the mistakes one can make, I mean, they're very, very similar. Okay. All right, Julian. So let's let's break it down the seven deadly sins. Number one is gossip or speaking ill of someone who's not present. I gotta think this is probably more more of an issue for people when they're speaking one-on-one or in a small group. But tell me about how gossip uh, can be a deadly sin of speaking. Well, I would take issue with there if you listen to politicians, I think. Ah, good point. Good point. Yeah. You know, speaking ill of somebody not present is very much. That has become they, become culturally acceptable now, has it not? Unfortunately, yes. And uh, even companies get into slagging off, as we would say in the UK, um, the competition from time to time. It's never very attractive. And uh, often it's untrue. And people know that. So, it, you know, there is this unfortunate slide into um, negative uh, discussions of people not there in all sorts of areas of life. Um, but it definitely in one-to-one communication or one to a small group, it's very common. Yeah. And um, gossips are not trustworthy people, are they? You That's right. Because people know that you're not trustworthy. They won't share things with you. It's not a great way to be. So, yeah, that's the first deadly sin. And, and I would say with all these deadly sins, I'm not literally saying ban them. Uh, I am saying if they become things that you practice a great deal or things that are very common in your communication, they're like holes in the bucket and you lose power. 
you lose the power of your communication by indulging over much in these things. Yeah, well said, well said. Uh, judging. So what do you mean by judging? Well, there I'm not talking about discernment, which obviously is very important. I'm talking about being condemnatory, being um, aggressively judging. I mean, we've all worked for bosses who never have a good word to say about and nothing's ever good enough, you know. Mm. Uh, I always say this, this is like the parent whose child comes home and says, I got 95% in the test. And the parent says, what happened to the other five? You know, nothing's ever good enough. Mm -hmm. And habitually finding fault is, it's wearing to be around. It's also not a great thing for business. I mean, I can tell you a very short story about that, which damaged me. I sold my business to an advertising agency in the UK, which was run by a guy who was terrifying. He wouldn't uh, take bad news well at all. You know, shooting the messenger was very common. And what happened over a period of years was that people stopped giving him bad news. In fact, they started to invent good news. And the net result of that years down the line was that the agency's uh, financial results had to be restated because wow. there had been a complete load of bullshit, if you don't mind the phrase, going on, which had got all the way into the accounts, claiming accounts hadn't been lost when they had, or claiming they were winning things when they hadn't. Um, and unfortunately, my sale was locked into a share price that got slaughtered by that. So Ugh. I had personal experience of how being condemnatory and negative like that and angry uh, and not praising people and particularly not being able to listen to bad news is just death for a company. Yeah. And we've all come across that, Julian, right? That, that seems like that. I'm not going to say it's common, but I've seen so many people in business, especially people who maybe come from a corporate environment where that was maybe not fostered, but certainly not um, not uh, eliminated. I think people think that sometimes that's the way you have to be in business. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know if you ever saw the film Whiplash, uh, where J.K. Simmons plays a terrifying character called Terence Fletcher, who's a drum teacher. And uh, he comes up with this phrase, there are no two more harmful words in the English language than good job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perfectly summarized. All right, negativity is is uh, maybe somewhat related here, but what, what do we mean by negativity as it comes to speaking? Well, the, the litmus test for this, for anybody who wants to check in and see how they do here, is how often do you use the words no or not? Some people fall into the habit of doing this. It becomes endemic. It becomes the way they are, and it's wearing again, to be around somebody like that. And, mm -hmm. you know, I told the true story on the TED stage about this. My mother, at the end of her life, became very, very negative about everything. Her worldview, basically, was everything's awful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I came in to see her in the hospital where she was recovering from a wrist injury and gave her the paper. And I said, oh, look, it's October the 1st today. And she said, I know, isn't it dreadful? <laughs> well, you know, if October the 1st is dreadful, what hope is there, really? And we have to go away and recharge our batteries. You know, the sun's out. It's going to rain later. Oh, come on. You know, right. It is just tiring to be around. It, it's draining. It's draining. And but it's also, I think, an easy habit to fall into, Julian. I think, you know, I think yeah. we've all found ourselves going that way and having to check ourselves on that. Right. Absolutely. Yes. So, so you know, be, being aware of the no's and nots, uh, how often do you say yes? Uh, there, there was a great advertising campaign when I was buying media back in the early um, 80s. Um, it was a garage type 
business and their slogan was the answer's yes now what's the question <laughs> uh, love that. well i wouldn't go that far but i think it's good to be uh, somebody who says yes a lot yeah so and open open to the possibilities open to looking at things from a positive perspective definitely definitely that this is henry lopez with a brief break from this episode to share a special offer from our show sponsor double do you ever feel like there aren't enough hours in the day to accomplish everything you need to get done i know i do I received some great advice on this early in my business ownership journey, and that is to delegate as soon as possible to become more efficient and grow your small business. Are you at a point in your business where you're contemplating hiring an assistant? Perhaps you're worried about not needing someone full-time yet and having a tough time finding a part-time virtual assistant that isn't overseas? That's where Double comes in. Double helps business owners by matching them with a personal assistant and providing the necessary tools to efficiently delegate administrative tasks, allowing you to focus on what you do best, running your company. Accepting only 0.5% of applicants, Double's comprehensive vetting process ensures that your personal assistant knows what they're doing and can help you save at least 10 hours in just the first month alone. Go to withdouble.com today and get 50% off your first month when you sign up with Double using the code HOWBUS22. That's withdouble.com using the code HOWBUS22 and unlock 50% of your first month. And most importantly, get time back so you can focus on what matters most to you and your business. All right. Uh, complaining is number four, which you say is a form of negativity. Well, what's why do you highlight that specifically, complaining? Well, complaining when you can fix something, like the food's bad, send it back. Absolutely. But when it's complaining about the management, the weather, the government, sport, you know, things you can't do anything about, it's just viral misery. And it doesn't help, really. It's not achieving anything other than making other people feel bad. So uh, again, it's something that perhaps is best left unsaid. I mean, what's the point of it? Uh, it right, it and it also doesn't show much leadership. In other words, it's 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 saying all these outside influences, and there's nothing we can do about it. And and yeah. and so it's easy to complain about a third party or some other uh, entity. Yeah, and it can become a really big habit for some people to complain mm -hmm. all the time. All right, and that relates to then excuses as number five or not not taking responsibility, right? Yeah, very much so. This comes from one of two drivers which are really behind all of these things, and this driver is wanting to look good. Mm. So people who make excuses don't want to be seen to have failed. And again, I think this is corporately very destructive. Um, the great thing to do when you failed is to say sorry and this is what I'm putting in place to make sure that doesn't happen again. Now let's move on and learn from it. You know, and ex mistakes are very important. If you're an in innovative company, certainly they are. You have to be willing to make mistakes and to fail in order to keep trying new things. And then you get to the success, even products like post-it notes. That was a mistake, wasn't it? Somebody was trying to make a very strong glue and came up with this thing that we now find very useful. So uh, making mistakes is important. Allowing mistakes up to a degree, not repeating them, but allowing them up to a degree is maybe important in your business. Making excuses, blaming somebody else, 
you never learn anything, do you? If it's never your fault, if it's never anything to do with you, you're not going to change, you're not going to grow, you're not going to adapt, you're not going to become better at doing whatever it is that you're doing. So yes, excuses, I think, are in the way of growth and innovation a lot of the time. Yeah, agreed. It's so common. I mean, I I talk about this often on the show in, in other contexts, Julian, because I, I think that we arrive at this point on this on this subject. And, and maybe again, me being older now, I see it more, it seems to me, the lack of accountability. But I think that it's a result of the indoctrination that our system uh, applies to us, you know, schooling and university perhaps. And, and then we say that mistakes are okay, but the truth is that what we learn, especially if we've spent any time in the corporate world as an employee is that that's not really true. Is it? Um, We, we really, our managers don't want us to make a lot of mistakes in school. We're taught not to make mistakes. We got to get the good grade. And I think that carries over then into how we feel about, what we do, how we behave when we make a mistake. What are your thoughts yeah, there? I agree. I think attaching this stigma to mistakes is um, is a mistake. <laughs> and, uh, we need to allow people to uh, and learn. I've got an eight-year-old daughter, and she's very keen to get things right first time, unfortunately, which means it's quite a trial to teach her a skill. I have to go through the, the whole, you know, the four stages of learning, mm-hmm. uh, unconscious incompetence, and then you move to conscious incompetence where you know you can't do something that you want to do. Then you practice and you become consciously competent. And then eventually you become unconsciously competent and you do it in your sleep. Uh, driving, for example, you know, mm-hmm. the first time you or I drove, our hands were glued to the wheel. Every muscle was rigid, you know, but now when driving, we're thinking about anything but driving. So that process is something that people need to understand. And there are mistakes along the way. You know, we we don't get anything right first time generally, or very few people do. Yeah. Even world champions, you know, picked up a tennis racket or a golf club or whatever it might be, and um, a lot of them had to learn certain things. Not everybody is a genius out of the box. So yes, that forgiveness, that humility, I think, and that generosity to others is very much part of being an effective team. I'm not talking about being soft. I'm not talking about, you know, there never being anything wrong, but I am talking about if somebody's making a genuine effort and they fail, then how can we help them to succeed next time is the question, not you're bad. Yeah. And as leaders, I mean, you touched on something there that's very subtle and important as leaders. I think we have the hesitancy to show that we've made a mistake, but when we do, it's so much more powerful. Now, not to be mistaken with what people want from us next is, and here's what we're going to do about it, right? Um, and so those two things go hand in hand. All right. So we've been talking about the seven deadly sins, gossip, judging, negativity, complaining, excuses. Number six is lying and exaggerating. So tell me about that. Yeah, well, this is, again, coming from looking good, isn't it? Exaggeration yeah. is something that um, creeps into language very, very regularly. And I've just done it there with very, very regularly. We feel the need a lot of the time to amplify, to make things bigger. And unfortunately, that causes a thing I call language inflation, where we lose words. And, you know, once upon a time, it was okay for us to be excited. Now we have to be super excited, Mm. don't we? 
And maybe in a couple of years, we'll have to be super duper excited or <laughs> hyper excited or something. Um, words like fantastic, amazing, extraordinary used to mean something. And now they all just mean good. And uh, don't get me started on the word awesome, which <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> your, your country has taken um, right down into just being good. You know, a pizza is awesome. How do you describe an amazing sunset? Uh, you know, <laughs> awe is supposed to be fear and wonder. And I don't think pizzas really do that to you, do they? <laughs> yeah, so, wait, there's no doubt about that. No. Yeah, exaggeration. I mean, there's a good exercise I recommend to anybody to take on for an hour or a day or whatever, however long you want to do, which is to say exactly what you mean without the hyperbole, without the exaggeration, without the readies and amazings and all that sort of making things bigger. And of course, if if you start on that road, it is a bit of a slippery slope and it's easy to, you know, I'm sure we've all claimed to have read a book we haven't read or seen a film we haven't seen just to keep the conversation flowing. But, you know, it, it can be a slippery slope down that road to lying and getting caught in it. And, you know, lying become becomes a web uh, and it's it's not a great place to be. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a great fan of honesty tempered with love. I mean, I do talk about the four foundations of powerful speaking. Uh, which uh, we can talk about maybe in a moment. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Honesty, you know, completely unbridled honesty may not be necessary all the time. Right. Oh, you look awful today. You know, yeah, it's not really necessary to say that. Um, but honesty is very important, and and exaggeration, and particularly lying, they are big holes in the bucket. Yeah, and it comes back to we've touched on it a couple of times that trust then uh, in the listener from the listener's perspective, even though it might be subconscious for them. I think we all are susceptible to, I don't know if I quite believe this snake oil salesman that keeps barking as to why this is so great, right? Um, I think we all have a natural filter towards that. All right, number seven, let's complete it here. Number seven is dogmatism, which I believe is the confusion of facts with opinions, but tell me why this is such a sin. Yeah, it's a lot of table thumping. This one comes from the other driver I just mentioned looking good as one of the big drivers. The other driver is being right. Mm. If there's one thing we like more than looking good, it's being right. And the easiest way to be right is to make somebody else wrong. Um, and being right has become such a huge thing in the world. It's been massively accelerated by the internet and social media. So you have people going out there going, ah, oh, look, thousands of people agree with me. Yeah, but millions don't, but you don't look at them. <laughs> you go and hang out with the thousands who do agree with you. And then we get all these cabals, these silos of extreme opinions where people who never would have met in the past are now hanging out together and reinforcing often very ludicrous, unfortunately, views, sometimes violent. And so dogmatism very much is the confusion of facts with opinions. They're two different things. You know, today is Tuesday. As we record this, this is a fact. Nobody can argue with that. Uh, however, opinions are so different and so varied. I mean, it'd be a wonderful world if we asked people's permission before giving. Would you? I've got an opinion about that. Would you like to hear it? Mm. No. Oh, what a shame! It was such a good opinion as well. <laughs> But I grew up in a family where there was a lot of table thumping and stating of opinions as facts. And then what results is argument, polarization, disagreement. And because of the being right thing, that's a slippery slope as well. We tend to demonize people who disagree with us, make them wrong, which makes us writer. 
And, you know, the bottom of that slope of depersonalization and demonization is disagree with me and I'll kill you, which is the, the ISIS solution to the world. And that's not a world I want my little eight-year-old growing up in. So listening is really important in this context. And there's a great quote by your former president, Barack Obama, who said, I will listen to you, especially when we disagree. Mm. Well, sadly, that is becoming a rare thing these days. People want to listen to people they agree with and they want to attack people they disagree with. And the internet is making that worse and worse, unfortunately. Yeah. So, yeah, the being right thing. I mean, Harvel Hendricks, who's a counselor and author in America, said a great thing. He said, you can either be right or be in a relationship. <laughs> and I love that. Truth in that. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks for sharing those thoughts on these seven deadly sins um, that if we think about, at least if we're conscious of, and especially if there are particular ones here where we have developed a habit, if we can start at least being conscious of it, being aware of it and starting changing that, it'll make us that much more effective. And then as you highlighted, not just, we're not just talking about speaking to a room full of people, but it can be individual speaking or within our businesses, speaking to a small, our small team of employees or, or partners or vendors or whatever other associates we might speak to. These are things that we can be, that we can apply to make us that much more effective. Right. And they, the cornerstones you touched on, I just want to finish off the other the other three quickly. You, you touched on, uh, and you use the acronym HAL, uh, HAIL rather, H-A-I-L, honesty. You spoke to authenticity. I think a lot of that has come out in what you've been sharing here on these on these sins, right? About being yourself, not exaggerating, taking responsibility. But what else do you want us to know about authenticity? Yes, it is about being yourself, really. I've, I mean, I've seen many people come onto a stage and kind of pretend to be somebody they're not. And it's it's a bit painful a lot of the time because people can sense it. Mm -hmm. It's so much more relaxing to be yourself and trust that you have a good message. You've got something important. You've got a gift to give to the person or the people you're talking to. And, you know, if you want to train yourself in delivering it effectively. That's something everybody can do. Right. So there's no reason to feel unconfident in being oneself. Uh, if communication is a challenge, there are ways to improve. And that can be get a voice coach, a speaking coach, uh, you know, an acting coach, whatever it may be, somebody who can help with the delivery side, what I call the vocal toolbox, all these amazing things you can do with this incredible instrument we all play the human voice. You know, I, I, I have spoke, spoken on stages to 2000 chief executives. And I say, how many of you speak in public? 2000 hands go up. How many of you have had formal vocal coaching? Six. I mean, amazing, why? amazing, Absolutely unbelievable. If your voice is important to you in life, which is anybody who sells, tries to influence, lead, inspire, uh, inform, uh, teach, uh, whatever it may be, if your voice is important to you in life, go get a vocal coach. For goodness sake, this is an incredible instrument. And it's as complicated to play it well as it would be with piano or violin or anything else. And, you know, there are a few people who are self-taught geniuses, but in the main, most people who are very good at anything have a coach. And the reason is that you can't see your own game and a coach will always be working on that extra 1%, no matter how good you get. There's always that extra 1% to go to. And my goodness, 
in my experience, the vast majority of people haven't mastered the basics of public speaking, uh, let alone, you know, the high level, the, the, how you stand, how you breathe, what you do, how you prepare. You know, these are essential things uh, and how you use aids, all of these kind of things. I mean, how many times have you seen somebody stand on stage and, and they've got a slide behind them with bullet points on and they turn around and start reading off the screen? <sighs> Yeah, I've seen that so many times. Oh, so many times. These are the basics. That, but it's interesting, Julian, how, how and this is even, again, those people who raised their hand, they, a lot of them, if you had asked me, I'm sure you sometimes do, are, uh, is it one of the things you most dread? Uh, many people will put it above the fear of death, right? So we have this fear, and I don't know where it comes from. Perhaps you have some thoughts on it quickly as to where this comes from that we just most people dread speaking in front of a group of people a lot of people do and the the main reason for that is that they haven't practiced so you know i would be very frightened if you told me i've got to play piano on the albert hall stage tomorrow to a thousand people well i'm not very good at the piano <laughs> i would be very upset and nervous uh, so you know doing anything for the first time or when you're not completely capable is somewhat nerve-wracking and if you're going to do it in front of dozens hundreds or even thousands of people who are staring at you that makes it that much more daunting doesn't it yeah we it don't does. like bad we don't like failing um but i have to say you know most people's fear would be losing their way for example drying sure. on stage i've sure. seen people do that on the ted stage many times and what happens you know the person stops and starts going red and looks flustered and gets gets a bit sweaty and what happens somebody in the audience will start clapping and the audience will clap and give right. them a round of applause to say, don't worry about it. It's okay. We're here. We're not going anywhere. Take your time. So unless you're, you know, on open mic night at a comedy club or something and, you know, people enjoy the yes, terrible yes. most audiences aren't like that. Most audiences no. are there. They want to hear what you've got to say. And they see they that vulnerability and they connect with it, right? Yeah, big time, big time. And so, you know, it would be fine in that situation to say, ladies and gentlemen, I am terribly sorry, but I've completely forgotten what I'm going to say next. Please bear with me. I'm just going to go off stage and get my notes and I'll be right back. And people would go, that's fine. I understand. Could Absolutely. happen to me. Absolutely. So, you know, remembering that people are actually on your side is a really big thing. This isn't, uh, you know, a thousand lions or tigers. This is a thousand people who are listening and wanting to get the gift you're about to give them. So I, I think, you, you know, there's a lot of fear of the thing which is based on a kind of a, a nightmare scenario that really doesn't happen. Um, I've had almost anything that can go wrong, go wrong in public speaking. And it's always okay in the end. Yeah. You know, it always, it's always, it's always a lot better. I always tell people it's always a lot better than you thought it would. Even for myself, I'll record episodes sometimes and I'll think, God, oh, that wasn't very good. And then I'll listen back to it and I'm like, it wasn't that bad. Yeah, um, yeah, but why is it that most people, at least initially, I have found seem to not like the sound of their own voice? Well, that depends if you mean the sound they listen to when they're speaking or the sound they listen to when it's recorded and played. Correct. Back and I think that's that's the key to it, Julian, right? Is that we mm. because we don't hear ourselves that way, it's foreign to us. Yeah. 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 You hear mostly you hear your voice through bone conduction, through right. your scalp. Right. And that, that tends to emphasize the lower frequencies. It doesn't carry high frequencies. 
So most people will think their voice is deeper than it really is. And when you hear it back, you know, often there's a tendency to go, oh, that's squeaky, that's not me, I just, you know, <laughs> sounds thin. But yep, that is the real you that people are hearing. And if you want to work on your voice, then it's very important to record yourself. I mean, I would say that's, you know, my biggest tip to anybody who wants to become an expert speaker, if they can't afford a coach or they don't want to coach, coach yourself. You can do it so easily now. Phones on tripods or just sitting on a bookcase or something, put a phone up and video yourself speaking and play it back. Couldn't agree with you more. Oh my goodness, I didn't know I did that thing. Yeah. It's the most painful thing, yet the most powerful thing you can do to help yourself with speaking as well as communicating. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's cringeworthy. I mean, I, I've been doing this for a long time as you have, and I'll watch a video of myself and say, What am I doing with my eyes? Oh my God. You know, uh, sometimes it's cringeworthy, but it's the most powerful thing, I think, in, in getting better and better at what you do as far as communicating goes, as far as speaking goes. Definitely. And you know what? I love talking on stage now because it's the moments in my life when I'm in front of a thousand or five thousand people or whatever it is that I feel most conscious because I have to be, you know, every gesture, every movement, every breath, every glance, everything is conscious because I'm in a conscious connection with a lot of people who are consciously looking at me. And I love that. It kind of elevates my Yeah, and you're per, you're performing, right? Yes, to a degree you are. I mean, I don't uh, you know, uh, I say I always advise people to go to Toastmasters. Uh, I, I do have a slight concern about the the level of performance that's involved in that style of speaking. As long as it's naturally you, that's great. Um but I I we're not actors. I'm not an actor, and I think being consciously yourself and conscious of the gestures you're using and so forth is great. Forcing yourself to be somebody else is perhaps not so great because it's less authentic. Yeah. And I'm a great fan of authenticity. So, you know, if you're a quiet person and you don't gesticulate much, then speak in that way and people will bear with you. You can work on these things if you want to change as a person. But pretending to be somebody that you're not on stage is not so great. And likewise, you know, if you're a, a tiger pacing around the stage and you're full of animation, well, that's you. So pace. So, you know, I think we're all different. The important thing is to be genuine yourself and try not to distract people from what you're saying. So, you know, I've seen people do the little walk of death round and round and round on a stage, you know, probably seen them do that as well, or just lean from one side to the other and then lean the other way and keep doing that. And then the audience are going, is he going to do that again? Oh, yeah, there he goes. <laughs> and it becomes a distraction from sure. what you're saying. Sure. So that's the only really important rule is not to distract people. Right. Got it. All right. Let me wrap up quickly and then we'll move on because of time. Those These four powerful cornerstones. And again, uh, we use uh, he uses the acronym HAIL, H-A-I-L, honesty, authenticity, integrity, and love. And you were just speaking to authenticity again. But let's keep moving here. Uh, we've, we've been chatting about things that you cover in the book. Again, the book, you have a couple of books, but um, specifically How to Be Heard, Secrets for Powerful Speaking and Listening, and Sound Business, How to Use Sound to Grow Profits and Brand Value. But what would you like our listeners to do if they want to learn more uh, from you and on, on this subject? 
Well, by all means, come by my website where you'll find, um, at the very least, you can download a really interesting film that uh, I made with an American speaker coach expert called Neil Gordon, where we pull apart my TED talk about speaking. And, you know, if you stand on the TED stage to speak about speaking, that's putting your head above the parapet big time. Sure. <laughs> Um, and, you know, I did it well. And so the question we were asking is, why did I do it well? Why did it work? What did I do right? What what could people learn from this and put into their own uh, speeches and talks? So that's a free download on my website. And I think it's really interesting. Um, I've got a course which people can check out if they want to go really deep into this. You know, I have a seven and a half hour course on all of this stuff. And then there's the book, as you've mentioned. The website is juliantreasure.com. So it's easy to remember, juliantreasure.com. And for anything about business, my company is thesoundagency.com, which uh, helps businesses to listen and make better sound. Excellent. All right. Speaking of books, is there another book besides your two that that you would recommend? I think there are two in in the, the context of running a growing business. One is personal, really about being a better uh, organized person, and that's Indistractable by Near Isle which I think is a great book in this world of constant distraction where, you know, as we talked about, there are lots of companies grabbing our attention left, right and center. It's very, very easy to become unfocused, to get distracted, to waste enormous amounts of time, which is such a precious commodity. So I think that's a great book for anybody who wants to be really productive in the face of this tidal wave of attention grabbing stuff. And the other one, I think, is a, a beautiful book called Quiet by fellow TED talker Susan Cain. And uh, what Susan's done there is to emphasize the importance of allowing introverts to deliver great value to a company. You know, we can all get seduced by this story that extroverts are the best because they're louder and more confident and more go ahead and so forth. Uh, but the people who are quiet in meetings often have a huge amount of value to give. And it's really important to allow them to do that. Uh, just, you know, in the same way that we need to allow, we think about neurodiversity and um, allowing different types of people to contribute to organizations by designing environments which are more inclusive and uh, forgiving of different people's tolerances. And half the world getting on for are introverts. I'm an introvert, believe mm -hmm. it or not. I mean, I stand on stage and speak in front of thousands of people, but I am introverted. Uh, and so I think it's really important that that huge goldmine of talent and genius and contribution is not submerged by the noisy people. And that's what Susan's book is all about. Yeah, lovely. I have not read that. I'm an introvert as well. So fascinating stuff. All right, Julian, we'll bring it to a close here. What's one thing you want us to take away from this conversation, especially from the perspective of a small business owner and trying to learn from this to become, you know, what I'm calling a better leader because you're, you are better at speaking and uh, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or to a group, maybe a group of employees or whatever it might be. What's one, one thing you want us to take away? Well, I think it's got to be that listening is a skill. Listening is an incredibly important skill for anybody running a business and for all the people who work in the business. So I do entreat you, work on it yourself as a leader, train people on it, reward people who are good listeners, appraise people on it, make it a significant part of your company 
to be a good listener is such a powerful thing in life and it'll help people to sell, to speak more powerfully. And also it'll transform your customer service if you truly start listening. So listening as a foundation for successful business, I think is the, the thing I'd love people to take away. Yeah, that's brilliant. It's a skill that, that uh, and so what that indicates is we can get better at it. We can develop it and then should be one of those foundational skills that we do get better at. The other key takeaway for me uh, amongst everything was your, your point about what's the listening I'm speaking into and asking myself that question uh, before I start speaking. Absolutely crucial. And it transforms everything. Where do you want us to go again to learn more? juliantreasure.com and look forward to seeing any of you guys there. And thank you so much for the chance. This has been a great conversation, Henry. Thank you, Julian. I appreciate you joining me today. Thanks for the insights and for sharing. This is Henry Lopez, and thanks for joining me for this episode of The How of Business. My guest today again was Julian Treasure. I release new episodes every Monday morning, and you can find the show anywhere you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or at my website, thehowofbusiness.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information about our coaching programs, online courses, show notes pages, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.